KFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz. And online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned. Up next is cover to cover. Open book. Sorry, it's open book. Welcome to Open Book, Literary Dialogues with Nina Serrano. Today's program features part one of my conversation with prize-winning poet, novelist, blogger, and activist writer, Alice Walker, recorded on October 18th, 2018, at the KPFA Benefit event in Berkeley. Nina Serrano is a poet, writer, translator, filmmaker, and independent media producer. She is a veteran KPFA program host producer, focusing on literature, Latinx, and world affairs programs all the way back to 1961. As a prize-winning poet, she has published three books of poetry, Heart Songs, Heart's Journey, Heart Strong, and a novel, Nicaragua Way. Nina currently produces literary dialogues with Nina Serrano on ninaserrano.com and YouTube channel, as well as her regular KPFA programs, La Raza Chronicles, Cover to Cover, and Open Book. Nina was a co-founder of the Mission Cultural Center for Latina Arts, served as an Alameda County Arts Commissioner, and is a former director of San Francisco's Poetry in the Schools program and the Stage Bridge Storytelling in the Schools program. So with that, please give Nina Serrano a warm welcome. Thank you, Catherine Horsley, for those kind words of introduction. I also want to thank Bob Baldack and the committee for producing countless live KPFA fundraising events, for inviting Alice Walker to share her new book, Taking the Arrow Out of the Heart, and for inviting me to host tonight and to bring us all together to help move our beloved community radio station forward. I'm so glad that at age 84, <laughs> that at age 84, so many of my life projects are coming together, including these 55 years of combining literature and radio. I first became aware and excited about Alice Walker when she won the National Poetry Award in 1974, just as our San Francisco Third World Women's Collective was publishing our Third World Women's Book of Art and Literature, which also included our very own radio producer and poet, Avacha. Yes. 
Then again, in 1982, when Alice Walker's prize-winning novel, The Color Purple, evoked a loud, dismissive response from the local male literati lights. I recognized their patriarchal voices at once. The familiar quiet woman, stay in your place. Don't be divisive with that women's lib talk. It's for wealthy white women. I thought of my friend and neighbor, Judy Knoop, a single mother of three, leading a welfare rights protest at San Francisco City Hall. I heard women's voices from Asia, Africa, Latin America, and across the world demanding equal rights for women and finally scoring a major UN victory, declaring 1975 the year of the woman and 1975 to 85 the decade of the woman. Back in 1983, Elaine Ellenson and I, thrilled by Alice Walker winning the Pulitzer Prize, invited her to be a headliner at our Breaking the Blockade of Ideas fundraiser for Friends of Nicaraguan Culture at the Palace of Fine Arts. She was our chosen literary queen who expressed solidarity with the oppressed of the world. No borders or caste systems for her. Once Alice was in the limelight, she brought the ancestors out of the shadows, spotlighting the neglected writings of Zora Neale Hurston, a black writer, activist, and anthropologist from the Harlem Renaissance era. Alice broadened the conversation about American literature, African-American literature, and women's literature. She didn't stop there. She found love in her mother's garden and deepened her spirituality until her poems, talks, and blog posts are now a source of sustenance for many globally. We are so grateful for Alice Walker's work, particularly after this anguished week of Kavanaugh hearings and the public denial of women's voices. Tonight, we will eagerly hear her read her own newly published poems that inspired the Cuban translator in Havana, Manuel Garcia Verdicia, to render them into Spanish to create this beautiful bilingual book, Taking the Arrow Out of the Heart. Please join me to bring on our very own literary shero, Alice Walker. I'm very happy to see you too. And thank you so much, Nina. That was beautiful, what I could hear of it. They need better sound back there. Wow, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to see you. This is what makes it all worthwhile. You know, when we're feeling really terrible. You know, like, oh, God, what more can we bear? <laughs> and then we find ourselves in a place like this, talking backstage about how amazing it is that somehow poets have managed to inherit the churches. 
Um, and really it is, I think, a, it's a wonderful thing that, you know, all these spaces that we managed to inherit were not really meant for us. They were actually meant to suppress us. They didn't want us to be poeting out there, you know. They really wanted us to <clears throat> be listening to something that would dampen our spirits and make us really sad, basically, and as if we didn't have our own connection to the universe, which we do. So over the centuries, it's just such a joy to know that we can, we can inhabit all of these spaces and bring the life to them that they deserve. Can you imagine how many places of worship are just dying to be liberated? <laughs> you know, they want to have dances. They definitely do. You know, they want to have music that's really just, um, you know. Anyway, um, we're thankful that we have this, and we're very thankful that you're here. Uh, it matters a lot that we come out for each other. And I hope you can hear me back in the back. Yes. <laughs> Good. I'm going to read this first paragraph because um, I, I sometimes just speak it, but I think it's nice to hear it. It's, it's about why uh, this book is called Taking the Arrow Out of the Heart. And it goes like this. No one escapes a time in life when the arrow of sorrow, of anger, of despair pierces the heart. For many of us, there's the inevitable need to circle the wound. Some of us spend decades screaming at the archer, or at least for far longer periods than are good for us. We always assume that an arrow that's so painful that we are feeling has to have been meant for somebody else. Don't you think, don't you feel that way at times? Like, this hurts so much. It couldn't be meant for me. You know, I've done everything right. Uh, anyway, some of us spend decades screaming at the archer, or at least for longer periods than are good for us, how to take the arrow out of the heart. How to take the arrow out of the heart. How to learn to relieve our own pain. That is the question. Like many such questions, it is delved into by Buddhism, but also by anyone who has lived long enough to see, by trial and error for the most part, that the futility we begin to feel as we attempt to bring down the archer leaves our wounded heart untended, and the medicine of life that abounds wherever we are, the medicine of life that abounds wherever we are, is left unapplied. Now, I first uh, was introduced to this idea by Pema Chodron, and I'm sure many of you have studied with Pema, either in person or on her tapes, because she's a wonderful teacher uh, of liberation. And I was basically suffering myself a great deal at the time that I discovered Pema, and feeling that I could not shift this feeling myself and it was she who mentioned to me that there are practices that our ancestors, in this case Tibetan ancestors, had put into play many, many centuries ago to help us deal with this suffering that we feel that we can never uh, handle by ourselves. And so many of you may be aware of a practice called Tonglen, which is the foundation of uh, helping you to deal with this suffering. 
and very quickly it is, you know, hopefully you would have a meditation practice. And then in this meditation practice, assume that you're in a room that's full of very dark, heavy smoke, uh, and this would represent the pain that you're actually feeling. And you, instead of trying to avoid it, sorry, I've been, I've been on the road a lot and I've gotten a little froggy, but instead of trying to avoid it, this hot, heavy, sad, suffering feeling, which I think most of us have had, you, you draw it in. So you, you can visualize it as this room absolutely full of this heavy, you know, acrid, terrible smoke. And you start to breathe it into yourself because this is something that uh, is oppressing you. Then after you have cleared the room of the smoke, which is now inside you, the instruction is to think about what you would rather have. And for many people, you know, just a clear blue sky when you wake up in the morning, the birds singing, your children happily off to school, whatever it is that makes you really happy. That's what you imagine breathing out. And the catch to this and what what makes it a true spiritual practice is that you don't breathe it out for yourself alone. You always breathe it out for everyone. So you assume that what it is that you want in the world is something that is good for other people and you want them to have it. So I love this practice because it means helping us rid ourselves of a certain kind of greediness that has led us to where we are now, which is a place where we have ignored other people, other beings on the planet to such an extent that it's almost as if we're all going down partly because we could not take the time to realize that all the beings we have mistreated really basically wanted to live just as we do. Thank you. But taking the arrow out of the heart was not the original title of this book. The original title was The Long Road Home, and there's there's something of a connection to taking the arrow out. But I was thinking... In the country, I was spending a lot of time meditating and feeling our ancestors, the ones who, you know, they're all colors, these ancestors. And I often think of them as people who basically would have died laughing because they had that sense of joy, except that it had been crushed out of them. You know, the red, the white, the black, the yellow, the brown. There's, There's that thing that we have in common, I think, which is just that mirth that rises in the spirit uh, that so many of our ancestors had. So one of these ancestors that I was thinking about a lot was Muhammad Ali. And many of us think of him as, you know, we, we immediately think of him as the boxer and the prize fighter, and of course he was that. Because if you think about it, if you are a black man in Louisville, Kentucky, and no education basically, and very little money, you have to think about ways to get out of there. And so he became a boxer. However, when it was time for him to be called to the army in order to fight the Vietnamese, uh, he refused. So this is... Mm-hmm. So this is part of what 
I was thinking about with the first title, which is The Long Road Home. And what is The Long Road Home? The Long Road Home is the road to your truest self. That's the longest road. And it is a treacherous one. It is incredibly challenging. And part of the reason I wanted to to look at this and to talk about, you know, the long road home and to write poetry out of that feeling is because of, for instance, things like the opioid crisis. The opioid crisis and drugs in general alert us to the fact that people are being hit in the heart all the time by the arrow of the drug industry. And this is just, you know, the, the image there is, is just, you know, almost a physical one of taking something. But the grief that occasions this, this piercing is, is overwhelming. And I, I think of our young people in so much pain and trying to dull the pain and not knowing that they, they must be on the path home. You know, there is somewhere that they are supposed to be going. It's not into drugs. It is, it is to the truest self. And if you don't ever get to the truest self, you don't get home. So we look at our society and we see a society that is not getting home. People are not getting home. They're, they're in television, they're in movies, they're in opioids, they're in, you know, whatever else. All these are distractions, but they're really also arrows, arrows in the heart to, to prevent you from getting to where you need to, to be in order to fully live this life. So Muhammad Ali just stood up and said, you know, I'm not going to go over there and harm these people. They never did a thing to me. And I'm sure he probably, until they, you know, made it a big deal, knew where Vietnam was. You know, because most of our children at the time didn't know. I mean, most people today, when they are sent off to wars, they hardly know where they're going. So he was finding this self. He was finding this, you know, who was he? This is who he was. So I wanted to honor that. And actually, I'll read you the poem that grew out of my thinking about him, because whenever we have elders and whenever we have uh, companions on the way who stand up, they're, they're actually like a signpost for us. They're actually saying to us, you know, don't go that way. You know, go this way. And, the, and sometimes you look at them and you think, well, yeah, well, you went that way and look what they did to you and you fell over the edge and so forth, you know. I mean, he, at the end of his life, had something, you know, a disease that, for all we know, uh, was given to him. I mean, you never know about the evil that is possible in this culture. But however that might have been, here is someone who remained... He remained on his path to his true self. So the suffering, of course, in this is not small. And that's what you learn as you go. That it takes a toll and you have to be willing to take the chance that you might not make it either because you decide you don't want to make it or because, you know, society has decided that, no, you won't make it. The long road home for Muhammad Ali I am beginning to comprehend the mystery of the gift, the gift of suffering. It is true, as some have said, that it is a crucible. It is a crucible. 
in which the gold of one's spirit is rendered and shines. Ali, you represent all of us who stand the test of suffering, most often alone, because who can understand who or what has brought us to our feet? Their knees worn out, ancestors stood us up from the awkward position they had to honor on the floor beneath the floor. The floor beneath the floor. I have been weeping all day thinking of this. The cloud of witness, the endless teaching, the long road home. Breathing in. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> Breathing in, <clears throat> I thank Thich Nhat Hanh. Breathing out, I thank him more. There is a connection between Muhammad Ali and Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh was there on the ground in Vietnam. His world was destroyed. Muhammad Ali chose not to be a part of the destruction. Thich Nhat Hanh comes to this country to help us imagine. I mean, imagine, here he comes with all of his knowledge, his wisdom, his beauty. Breathing in, I thank Thich Nhat Hanh. I was so happy that Martin Luther King Jr. Um, suggested him for a Nobel Prize. Now, he doesn't need a Nobel Prize. Nobody does. But it was a wonderful gesture. You know, a one warrior, priest, monk, holy person, true human being, seeing another and welcoming that person you know, in the, in the best way that he could think of. I love it. What beautiful people. Breathing out, I thank him more. This is called the New Dark Ages because we are in the New Dark Ages. You feel it? And I dedicate this to Martin. Because, you know, some of you never saw him, probably never think much about him. Um, but for us, people of color, he remains this brother who loved us. You know, I've been taking this book and reading it. That's why I'm so throaty. And, and talking to younger people who seem not to know how loved they've been. And I feel it as such a tragedy. It, how can you not know, and yet I know how they don't know, that you've been so loved, that you were loved by people who, you know, they didn't have hardly anything. 
but they, they knew they wanted you to have a future. So beautiful. So anyway, as we slip into the new dark ages, you become more dear to me. Your face, your smile, that carefully trimmed, never to turn gray hair. We may not emerge from this darkness in my lifetime. And yet, I think of you so often smiling or laughing outright, your sturdy frame gallant and ready for the fight. Though it is true you left home like the Buddha to find a way for all of us, leaving your wife and children to suffer a most peculiar loneliness. And yes, the children, some of them, would be lost. Still, we miss you dreadfully, as we miss so many others who left us with this one desire, this one desire, that no matter how steep the fall into obscurity and obscenity, obscurity and obscenity, this new age pretends, portends, life might permit us, life might permit us to remain standing Remain standing, if only on the inside, smiling and laughing with you among the solemn army who went out into the darkness all those years ago, always singing, always singing, to examine the path and be the light. Now, this is a poem, in a way, for Jamal Khashoggi. Now, many people, Saudi Arabia is not even on their radar, you know, at all, really. And yet, it is such a terrible, bloody, repressive place. And it didn't just start being that way. So, when I was reading about uh, Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi, I always see that word not applied to him, but to his family and the, the sheikhs who have all that money. I didn't know they pronounced it Kashagi, so I always pronounced it as Cash Hog. <clears throat> um, anyway, and I think that really fits a lot of them, basically, because the, the greed just seems in. Incredible, you know, just seeing, but also the cruelty, you know, the stoning of women, you know, the you know immuring them in behind walls, and the you know the the new guy who uh, was touted as being so progressive that he let women drive, and then he locked up the women who organized the driving. So anyway, so this is this this is a poem that comes from a couple of years ago. And I was going to look up what happened to this man that I'm going to read to you about, but I just couldn't bear it. So his name is um, Raif Badawi. Raif Badawi. And it's called Light a Candle. Darkness is gaining. Winter in Gaza. Babies freeze to death. Soldiers shoot children, aiming for their eyes. Light a candle for us all. 
Light a candle for the children. Light a candle for blind justice. Light a candle for the death of hope in Saudi Arabia. And though it is hard to look, but I didn't tell you what what the problem was I'm writing this morning about. The Saudi Arabian government ordered 1,000 lashings and 10 years in prison to Raif Badawi for insulting Islam. Darkness is gaining. Winter in Gaza. Babies freeze to death. Soldiers shoot children, aiming for their eyes. Light a candle for us all. Light a candle for the children. Light a candle for blind justice. Light a candle for the death of hope in Saudi Arabia. And though it is hard to look and harder to let ourselves feel, thinking, what can I do? What can I do? Thanks for listening to Open Book, Literary Dialogues with Nina Serrano in conversation with Alice Walker. This has been part one, excerpted from our longer conversation. Parts two and three are coming up soon. Have a good day. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, 97.5 K248BR Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. Your local station board election is happening. Visit elections.pacifica.org to find out about the candidates, members like you who want to help keep KPFA alive. Look for your ballots starting January 18th via email or postal mail. Vote as soon as you can. Ballots must be received by March 5th. Have questions about your eligibility, the voting process, or need a replacement ballot? Email the